Welcome to Reframe. My name is Josiah Van Vliet, and this is a mini episode. Current formatting idea is to have mini episodes in between every real episode in which I discuss any good comments that I got and small little things that don't deserve their own f- entire episode. So my first episode got some real responses, which was great news for me. Uh, my friend Adam wrote in, he wrote me an email. He saw the issue not so much as where I stopped, but he wanted to take it another step further. He wanted to talk about what happens when we get automation such that there really just aren't enough jobs anymore, where everything's getting taken care of. I don't find that question particularly compelling because the history of economics is that, especially post-industrialization, you know, there used to be something like 93% of the working population worked on farming, and now it's something like three or 5%. I think that the history of the economy since then, people find ways to make money with the labor of others. And if you look at the productivity gains, it's frankly really strange that we all still work full time. If you had looked at that, you would have naturally, you might have assumed that we would now be working 20 hours a week, having the same amount of stuff and, you know, being, having a lot more free time, but that's just not how Western civilization seems to work. But he did ask a really, I I think he was headed somewhere important. And I think that there are ways in which those questions have not been dealt with or looked at or asked really. And he asked one question that I thought was really compelling is that, you know, in a context in which there aren't enough jobs and there's nothing left that people need you to do, how do you think about how the society that could give you pretty much anything, um, certainly a basic welfare, clothing, housing, food without asking you to work, what do we do and how do we think about that? And the question he asked was, what is a human owed? What do we owe people just because they're here? Even if they're not useful, even if we don't need them, even if they're not contributing, what do we owe them for support, for enrichment, um, for basic necessities? And that is not how we think about things in the contemporary age. And I think that if he's right and that once we have self-driving cars and all this AI stuff, we will need to start considering a new way to evaluate people and their value to us beyond how useful they are to us economically. Um, And my friend Liam also wrote me, and I'm going to have a harder time characterizing what he had to say because he's a very different thinker than I am. So me trying to put forward what he said is not going to go really great for what he was thinking. Um, And I apologize. But he objected to my characterization of the problem in that in terms of the election which I wasn't really talking about but I see what he was saying completely that I'm basically putting forward in my economic analysis uh, keeping in mind he has a PhD uh, so if he and I disagree he's right um, in this arena in terms of the election and economics I really focus on the fact that being poor is just miserable there are a million concrete ways in which being poor is super, super unpleasant and unfair. And there are all these very rich people who have a ton of money that we could just take that from and their lives wouldn't be changed meaningfully. We could give it to people who have neither medical care nor, you know, safe housing nor dental care and their lives would be vastly improved. And in a world like that, I think that that those basic miseries are the problem. But in the context of the election, he was making a point that there's a sort of 
emasculation that goes on with this manufacturing dynamic um, that's fairly specific that, you know, the there's a role that the man played in a culture and in a family in the 50s and 60s that a man can no longer realistically play in today's economy because in the 50s and 60s, yeah, a working man could bring home enough money to support an entire family, and now he can't. Liam was talking about how Trump did a really good job of sort of addressing this psychosexual role destruction that the economy has done, admittedly in a super like misogynistic, terrible way, but still he was addressing the feelings that those people have about the impact of the economy, whereas the democratic message is much more about we're going to change the tax rate without really addressing how all of these money problems play into the social roles that used to exist that no longer exist. And I think that I see what he's saying. I think that if you just made people less miserable, they wouldn't vote for dumpster fires. But I think that there's a lot to be said for looking at what the people who are miserable think the problems are as opposed to the strict economic analysis of how those problems came to be and what you would do to solve them. I think addressing what those people feel like has happened to them. And in this case, right, if he's right, and I think he probably is, what has happened is that the role of masculinity has been fundamentally removed from the economy because there are no jobs accessible really to many people. Like very few people can work a job that plays the role of breadwinner in the 50s and 60s sense. So that masculine role actually sort of no longer exists within the economy, and that leaves people in a, a state of, I'm not even sure what to call that, but like not having the role that you were told you were supposed to fit into leads to a sort of desperation and a sort of crisis of self that, in the context I understand it, is really, really crazy-making. I want to thank Adam and Liam for both listening in the first place, taking the time to write me, um, letting me use their names. I'm much better in dialogue than I am in monologue, so I appreciate them contributing. I hope that, and they really did, they had perspectives that I didn't have. I think that both of them were very valuable, so I wanted to bring them up in this mini episode, and then we'll move on to what the mini episode is about. Indivisible is the meat of this episode. It doesn't really need a reframe. It's just something that I read about and I thought it was interesting and I think it's worth sort of giving some signal boost to. If you don't know, Indivisible is a document written by a bunch of former congressional staffers who saw how the Tea Party managed to arrest the progress that Obama wanted to make and really stalled his agenda. And in the light of Trump's and the Republicans winning as big as they did, those congressional staffers put together this document sort of explaining those tactics. I went to a local Indivisible meeting where they were sort of explained, and it made me want to look into it myself and recapitulate those strategic points with a little bit of flavor and a little bit of insight that the points themselves do not generate. The whole point of this strategic package is the context for the strategic package rather is that 
we've already lost power. And because of some parliamentary and electoral realities, what that means is the Democratic Party has no capacity to put forward a positive program. That's because of the way the House works. The minority party really can't put forward bills. Um, the minority, the majority party is the only party that can. If you're giving strategic advice to the party in minority, then the only thing you can do is defense. This makes the document sound somewhat negative and somewhat pessimistic, but it's just a parliamentary reality. If this document had come out um, in a different election year, it could be positive. These strategies will work in either direction, but if you read it, that negativity is a reality of the rules of the House. And so if you're going to influence your members of Congress during such a time, there are two basic issues around which there are two things that your member of Congress cares about. Being reelected and day-to-day resources. Part of what we're going to do if you're going to influence your member of Congress according to the strategic package is make that congressperson feel like doing what you want makes it more likely that they'll be elected. That's just going to be a, a raw piece of influence. They care about keeping their job. If you can signal properly, they will think that following your influence makes it more likely for them to keep their job, and that's a huge lever on their motivational patterns. The other thing that they say in Indivisible is if you're taking up the staffer's time or the congressperson's time because of some issue or another, placating you just frees up one of their major resources. And this leads me to a small aside that in especially business environments, a lot of people talk about money as the most important thing. But I've noticed that money is almost never the, per- the thing that the person that you're talking to cares most about. The person that you're talking to on a day-to-day basis at work, some other resources, their major constraints, either time or frustration, labor hours, technicians. There's always something, but it's very rarely money. And if you want to get along with the people around you at work, it really behooves you to pay attention to the thing they have the least of and make sure you're not eating too much of that. Um, or getting them more of it in terms of generating goodwill, um, even in a you know, for-profit company. But that's a, a that's an aside. So what we're doing here with Indivisible, trying to make sure that the congressperson that represents you feels like if they do what you want them to do, then they will have more resources and be more likely to re- get reelected. There are four basic opportunities that Indivisible talks about as chances to create that impression. And they mentioned town hall events, non-town hall events, district office sit-ins, and call banking. At all of these events, they have specific strategic, like when to bring a sign, when not to bring a sign, what kind of questions to ask. And I'm not going to get into all that because I think that's pretty boring and pretty obvious, just narrow cast stuff. But these are the chances to impact their day in a way that they're likely to notice and be influenced by. And they talk about the ways in which um, these things can be done, by whom they can be done. Uh, who do you send to this district office sit-in? Who do you have call them? What kinds of things do they want to hear? Not even want to hear because they probably don't want to hear from you at all. But like, what kinds of things strike them as important? They recommend that the congressman people only care about their own constituents. So don't bother bothering some other congressperson. Make sure that the person that you're bothering 
knows that you're one of their constituents, that you're in their district and you're going to vote for or against them. They want to see real effort. So tweeting, online petitions, all that other stuff is really not a signal as far as they're concerned of something they need to care about because it's so easy to do that the people doing it probably don't really care that much. So what they want to see is physically in person, handwritten letters, phone calls, stuff that takes the people who they are interacting with time so that the congressperson gets the signal that this is an issue that people are going to care about and they're going to remember, going to impact them on election day. They want to hear they're also influenced when these interactions hit the press. And you can see, obviously, how that's just sort of a multiplier of the effect. Not only do they want to have people feel good about them, they want to seem like the kind of person who people feel good about. So if bad press is worse than you think it is, because not only is it sort of making people like them less, it's also making them seem unlikable, which is really dangerous for an elected official. They're influenced by groups of people or people who stand in for groups. So locally famous people, interest groups, stuff again where like, the signal that they're getting from the person they're interacting with at a town hall or on the phone is not just one person. They are a stand-in for hundreds. That's another signal that whatever it is you're trying to influence them to do is important to their chances in the next election. They also warn against unactionable or incoherent demands. Apparently, members of Congress do not really care about wonky stuff from the electorate. They don't care what you think of the minutia of a bill, which is good because I don't really care to read those bills. But if you're going to be trying to influence them, you have to have actionable, understandable demands. So you want to go to your member of Congress with something that they could do. Vote this way. Uh, make this issue better. Simply understood things. And that's basically Indivisible's big message. I've gotten involved a little bit. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do, if I'm going to work with these people on trying to influence my representatives. And I think it could be really important because the Democrats are really spineless and we really, really can't afford to have that anymore. Republicans under Trump are maybe going to try and do some really, really crazy stuff. And we would be much better off if they didn't. If we don't bother to try and influence our representatives, then our representatives aren't going to represent us. And I think this could be really important. And that's why I brought you this like little synopsis of what Indivisible is talking about. I think it's really good advice. I think it's interestingly actionable. It's interestingly programmatic. It is not just sort of get involved, do a thing. It's very concrete and it's a short document. It's not hard to follow. I've looked into it. There are a ton of groups here in Massachusetts, and this is not a battleground state, but we can still provide the motivation that our representatives need in order to actually stand up for us in uh, Washington. Um, so thanks for listening. If you have comments, I would really appreciate it if you found my Facebook page, which I will try and link in the show notes. It's the reframe on uh, Facebook. It's actually facebook.com slash the the reframe because the reframe was taken. I apologize. Uh, I got two donors on Patreon. Um, they're people I've known for years. Uh, so it doesn't feel like I'm really reaching the people, but it does feel like I'm being supported. And that's really, really great. And I'm super appreciative 
uh, to both Chris and Zach for, you know, dropping a couple dollars a month on me. It's not a lot of money, but I got to tell you that someone actually, you know, giving me legal tender via the internet to do this is, it's really encouraging. Um, and a bunch of people mentioned to me, like went onto iTunes and reviewed it and rated it. And I got a five-star rating. Uh, all five reviews are a five-star rating. So I appreciate everybody who reached out, listened, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you being supportive, taking the time to listen to me. And I hope that Inauguration Day treats you as well as it can. I will be out and about screaming about whatever. You know, so come join me on the comment on Saturday. And uh, thanks again for listening.